Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, hello, Redemption Hill. It is great to be with you today. Um, we are, DC has moved into phase two of reopening. And so as, even as we try to discern what that means and, and as we're seeing things spike in different areas of the country, we are progressing as a city and things are moving the right direction so far. And so this past week, we rolled out an announcement for what that means for Redemption Hill Church. For us, this means that we are heading into phase one of our reopening plan. Um, we have no desire to move very quickly on this, and so for those of you who are concerned, we will offer a live stream on, or a streaming, a streaming service on Sunday mornings uh, for the foreseeable future. What this does mean is that through the month of July, we plan to begin to invite a group of community groups each week to come to our service recording with us. And so that's a chance to get, have people get used to coming back into the building for us to try out our systems and processes and traffic flow to see if this is going to work well. And the next likely time that we would have a Sunday service that's open will likely be August 2nd and that weekend. And so um, you can look for, if you're part of Redemption Hill and in a community group, look for announcements this upcoming week on which community groups will be invited to the recording next week and, um, and, and keep in touch on that. If you have questions, you can direct them to us directly, our staff team. You can find all our contact info wherever you need to find it on CCB or on the website. Um, but this is our plan looking ahead. We obviously long for the day that we're back and together and that we don't have to worry about things like wearing masks or keeping distance, and all of that has an implication, especially with the, for those with little kids. Um, but for now, we also feel the weight of responsibility both for the protection of the people who are part of Redemption Hill and as a witness to our city. So um, we are beginning to move through some things and keep, in, keep a lookout on all of our communication channels for updates coming soon. Now, let's pray together, and we're going to jump right into God's Word together today. Um, Father, we now come to you and ask that you would speak to us. We come into this place feeling tired and weary and drained and um, not without a measure of hope, but also still uh, watching as our nation is reeling and, and watching in the conflicts that we see. And we know that especially in an election year, the next few months are not going to get easier and, and that you're, and so we pray that you would, you would help by your spirit to preserve the, preserve the unity of the church and a bond of peace among us. And we pray today that as we read your word, you will speak to us and give us exactly what we need. We are grateful that your word is given to us and that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and so that, so that we can count on your voice coming to us. And we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been in a study of Romans since the beginning of January. Um, it's almost hard to remember at this point that everything that's happened since January because it feels like it's been six years. Um, but it was in January that Redemption Hill, you might remember that I had my ankle rebuilt. And so I preached the beginning portions of Romans sitting in a chair here. Um, and that was this year. It seems like so long ago. And so, but over the last eight weeks now, we have been in Romans chapter eight. And so we really slowed down in this chapter to try to absorb what it has for us. And today is the eighth sermon out of Romans eight, which means we're bringing to a conclusion our study of Romans eight together, which is a little bittersweet for me. I wish we could sit in this chapter forever, but there are other good things for us to get to as well. Now, as we come to the end of Romans chapter 8, we have seen this in this chapter the most spirit-saturated chapter in all of Scripture that talks about the Holy Spirit more times than any chapter in the New Testament, a, a chapter that is given to us as a, a, an incredible assurance of God's love and care for us. And so today we come to the conclusion of this chapter and the close of this section of the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote for us. And as we do that, there's a, sum, a summary of everything that he has to say, and it begins with him saying, what shall we say to these things? 
And so he's looking at all of the things that we've seen so far as he says that. And at the core question of this, um, sorry, I juked you, Kathleen. <laughs> at the core of all of this, we, there's a question for every one of us that this passage helps to answer. This is one, we looked at one last week that is familiar and that people cling to in their lives. And as I talked to my own community group this week, we talked about people, how people had clung to the idea that God will do, will, that all things will be for our good and God will use all things for our good in the end, but, but how the richness and depth of the context of that passage makes it even more beautiful than just a simplistic, well, it's all going to work out in the end kind of mentality, but, but clinging to that. And similarly, this passage is one that, that you can cling to in your life because it answers the question, am I loved? This is, for every one of us, the deepest need that we have, is to be known and to be loved. And, and so it's scary to think about being loved, and this is the kind of question that we ask all the time, is am I loved? Any room that any of us walks into, as we look around, we all ask a question, do I fit here? Am I known here? Do I belong here? Will I be loved here? In relationships and friendships that we have, we play these games, don't we? Where we're not sure where we stand with somebody and we evaluate, you know, does this person really know who I am? Do they, does this person love me? Do they care about me? How much can I trust this relationship? And unfortunately, because we've been betrayed in our lives, it makes it even more difficult because we're scared that it's going to happen again. But even more than human relationships, there's a question that every one of us wrestles with, does God love me? Because I know me, and there's times when I feel very lovable, and there are times when I can't believe that God could possibly love me. And so we ask, you know, we, we struggle through the questions of, is there anything I can do to earn God's love? How can I earn his love? How can I, what, what do I need to be afraid of? Can I lose his love? And that might be the more scary question. Is there anything I can do to sour this? Because I've seen people walk out on me. Is God ever going to walk out on me? Well, today in Romans 8, we get to that question. And this is what we read in verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The message of the text today is that God loves you. That if you are in Christ, you are loved by God, and nothing can ever take that away from you. Now, remember where we've been in Romans chapter 8. So, he begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there is no condemnation. It goes on to say God's righteousness is fulfilled in us through Christ Jesus. So the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And the spirit of God then, the, the third section we saw is that the spirit changes our mindsets. 
that our, our, the way that we think and process things is, is changed when we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, which is the fourth section we looked at. The, the Spirit of God, if you are in Christ, dwells within you. That he, it, you are changed because the Spirit of God is with you and you never have to worry about God's presence leaving you. And then the result of all of this is that we are adopted as children and heirs in one family, adopted with one, and the Spirit testifies to our adoption. We have an inheritance in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And then we were able to see that in the midst of suffering, that all things are groaning and that the Spirit of God groans on our behalf with, when, when we don't have the words to say. And last week, we were able to see that the, in all of this, it says in verse 28, and this is what leads into our passage today, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so this is what Paul is looking back to then. This, the full context of Romans 8, but particularly the, those last three verses. And what we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And this golden chain that we saw of saving faith, that, that if we are foreknown, loved by God before the foundations of the earth, then we are predestined, we have a destiny to be shaped into Jesus' mold. That we are called by God, and if he calls you, he will justify you, declare you righteous. He will, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so in the midst of that, so he has this tightly packed theology bomb he drops on us, and it's in the midst of all of that that then Paul says, okay, so what are we supposed to say about all of this? Like Romans 8 is so densely packed and there's so much going on. And he says, so what's the conclusion? What, what are we supposed to say? And he follows up with five questions that that drive home the same big idea and the big point that Romans 8 has been driving the whole way through. He follows up with five questions that, that push our doubt and unbelief away and root our confidence firmly in what God has done. Because the five areas that Paul addresses next are things that all of us struggle with. Things that every one of us need assurance on because these are our deepest fears. These are the things that make us question God's love for us. We question God's love for us when we face opposition, when it feels like we have enemies. We question whether it's worth it. We, we question God's love for us when, we, when needs are exposed, when it doesn't feel like our needs have been met. We question God's love for us when we face accusations from people when our character is maligned, when people speak against us and slander us. Those are moments when we say, God, where are you? You say that it's yours to avenge and you'll repay, so what's, what's going on? We question God's love for us when we hear the voices of condemnation spoken over us. And we question God's love for us when we face suffering, when things don't go like we think they ought to go. But this passage tells us, first and foremost, God loves. Simply, God loves. And so again, in this beautiful chapter, he wraps it up with five questions, and the five questions really have no answers because the truth behind them outweighs any answer. The first question is, who can be against us? So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's question number one. Now, Paul could have started the, the question simply. He didn't, he didn't have to start it with, if God is for us, who can be against us? But he does start it that way. But let's face it. If Paul had asked this question instead, hey, who can be against us? We would have had answers. I can think of people that are against me. I can think of a list of people that have been against me in my life. We can start spitting out people who are against us and provide a flood of responses. And, and, and he lists a bunch of those later on when he says, when he talks about distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, angels, rulers, and all of these things. But, but I think we could add to this list. Like for some of you, when you think, I mean, we could add, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are against me. 
For some of you, it's more specific like th- than that. And if Paul was to say here, who can be against us? He would say, my boss can be against me. Or my in-laws, they, they feel like they're against me. Or my spouse feels like they're against me. My neighbor, my roommate, my coworker. And we can list people that we think are against us. One commentator said sometimes under calamity, which you could, I think we can at this point say that 2020 feels like calamity, right? Sometimes under calamity, the whole universe seems to be against us. And so look around you right now. Doesn't it feel like that some weeks? Like how many plans have been changed? How many disappointments have we felt? And I, I saw somebody tweet this past week, maybe time travel is real. And someone keeps trying to help us out in 2020, but makes things unspeakably worse. So they saved us from murder hornets. Those have disappeared somehow, but at what cost? (laughs) Now, so it can feel that way. This year feels that way, but remember the foundation that precedes this. God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, and these are past tense. Remember, these are the things we know to be true, that God is definably for those who love him and have turned to Christ. And so it's in that light that he's saying, we know, and if you are in Christ, then you know that God is for you. He has loved you before the foundation of the earth. He has set your destination to be conformed to the image of his son. He has, he has, has called you to himself. He has justified you in Christ, not because of anything you've done. All we do is turn in faith. It is because of the cross of Christ, and he has glorified you. We know that God is for us, and so that's why he's able to say, what should we say to these things? If well, He's not saying like, well, maybe if God's for us. He's saying, God is for us, and if that's true, then who can ever stand against us? This is the truth that we stand on. And so, if you were part of our series back in Romans 8.1, um, I asked you to write in your Bibles in, to say, there is now no condemnation. It says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, and say, if you're a Christian, you can write your name into that verse. There is now no condemnation for you. You can do the same here. You can write your name next to this verse. If you are in Christ, then God is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? you God, so you can write right next to it. God is for and with your name. So that's the first question. God loves us. Who can be against us? The second question, will he not graciously give us all we need? And so similarly, Paul starts it with truth. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This gets to our neediness, which none of us likes to admit. None of us likes to admit that we need help. None of us likes to receive help. We'd like to do things on our own. We'd like to be independent. We'd like to be strong. It's hard to admit need. What's harder is that when we hit patches where there are things that we do need or feel like we need and they're denied to us, then again, it comes back to this question of does God even see me or know me or love me? I can remember I was doing a wedding several years ago and at the wedding, I was, we were walking through the wedding vows and so the bride and groom were repeating after me and, um, and when I got to the repetition of in sickness and, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Um, when the bride said, for richer or for poorer, she burst into tears. And the idea of committing to the marriage into poverty in that moment in her wedding struck her. Something struck a nerve. We don't, the idea of being at a place of need for us, for many of us, is crippling and scary. 
And so we like to try to be self-sufficient. We long for comfort and security and ease, and, and we want those things. So we try to build up those things. And even in Christianity, we can spiritualize those things. And I'm, it's good to be wise with money. It's, we are called to be good stewards with what God gives us. But Christians take this way too far. Um, when I was in college, I went to a Christian college because I went, it went immediately into seminary, but, um, at, and near the campus, I waited tables. I worked um, for one semester at a place called Baker Square that's like Denny's but pot with pie. Um, and I used to bring free pies back to the campus, so I was very popular that semester. Then I didn't work there ever again. And so I moved over to Chili's and worked at Chili's for a few years. And, um, but I can remember waiting tables that you, we always knew that is, if you saw people come into the restaurant and open up Bibles at their table, what do you think we anticipated about the tip we were about to get? See, what's sad is that all of you just, like people, the people that are here, I saw thumbs down, I saw zeros. Why would you expect that? Wouldn't you think that Christians would be the most generous people on the face of the earth? That if we understand what God has given us and, and that if we see people serving us, that of course we'd want to thank them. But you're exactly right. If, if, when I was working at Chili's, I knew that if Christians came in, they would order a basket of chips for the table and waters around. And the basket of chips cost three twenty-nine or whatever. And so I'd get a 50-cent tip. Like they'd even it up to $4. Like we knew that it was going to be, if, they, if people got a meal and, they, and you know that they were Christians, we knew that it was going to be 10% tip to the penny. Like they would get out pennies if they had cash or do it to, not just even things out. And so it was all, and my, my coworkers knew it too. And, and it's, it's, Christians were some of the stingiest customers I ever had waiting tables. And it was a terrible witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of the deepest, most painful experiences I've had in my life as someone employed by a church, which I'm thankful to be able to do what I do and make my living while I do it. I, I can't believe that God has opened up the way for that to happen, but that means also that there are times when Christians decide that they need to be my personal financial managers. And when I've had people in churches that I serve asking to see bank statements so they can see how we're spending the Lord's money deciding how my family should be able to use money and not use money. And, and so listen, that, that, that kind of a lack of generosity and an obsession with penny pinching ref, reflects a heart that doesn't understand God's own heart. This is what Jesus meant when he said to the Pharisees, listen, you're following the law, you're tithing even your spices, your mint and your cumin, but you have missed the heartbeat of God's law for justice. That there, there is a lack of understanding and seeing people and being generous in that. So yes, be wise and use resources well. Be thoughtful and intentional. And, but also, can we just thank God that his heart is not like ours? That, that, do you see the truth that God grounds this in, in, in our needs? He says, it's him who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the God who's going to meet our needs. And so when he asked the question, he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying? Yes, you have needs. Yes, your needs can be scary. Yes, when they're unmet, it can we wonder. I mean, Jesus talked about this with, as he taught, right? Like when he said, why are you anxious? Don't be anxious about anything. Look at the flowers of the field. They're clothed more brilliantly than Solomon in his splendor. My father takes care of the sparrows and the birds of the air. He's going to take care of you. But even if our physical needs aren't met now, do you see that the generosity of God is that he has promised us all things and already given Christ for us? But see, the problem that we have is that most of us can think of all kinds of things that we think we need or that we would like that God hasn't given us. We have unmet prayers and unanswered prayers, and, and we have faced real need in this life, but we would like new things. We'd like a new job. We'd like a new car. I mean, think of the list of things that I just talked about. We'd like a new roommate. We'd like some of you want a new spouse. Come and talk to us. We can help you. But when God doesn't give us these things, we feel unloved and we complain and we feel sorry for ourselves. At the core of our problem 
It's not that some of these other things are unimportant, but we ultimately devalue Christ. We don't, we don't see and love and value Jesus Christ as God the Father loves and sees and values him. We have a tendency to think that the gospel is first and foremost about our own individual salvation, and so our hearts get arranged so that the things that we want now are things that we actually love more and that are more valued for us and more desirable for us, and so we begin to base God's love for us on the unmet needs we have in our lives that are temporal rather than seeing the grand scope of what he's given us and saying, this is the one who didn't spare his own son. Christ has been given for you. Don Carson said here that we too quickly think of our salvation as almost exclusively with respect to its bearing on us. And certainly there is endless ground for wonder in the Father's love for us, in Jesus' love for us. But undergirding them, more basic than they are, is the Father's love for the Son. Because of the love of the Father for the Son, the Father has determined that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The argument here in Romans 8.32 is cogent only because the relationship between the Father and the Son is the standard for all other love relationships. Do you hear that? Because what's being extended here to us, we have a tendency to think only about ourselves, but what's being extended here, understanding the gospel is that God is love, and He is the standard for love. And God is love in eternity past, before we were even created. That God, Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally existed in a loving unity, equal and divine and, and co-equal together, and they planned out creation through redemption and restoration and looked ahead before the foundations of the world to know and love those who would call on Christ. And, and it, it, that is the love that has been extended to you. That is the gift that has been extended to you. So the gospel is an overflow, an outpouring of intra-Trinitarian love between the persons of the Godhead extended to us. And as we turn to Jesus, we participate in some way in the existence of God himself and are brought into his family. That's what we've been given. And so that's why Paul is able to say, how will he not give us all things? Of course you have needs, and God sees you, and he loves you. Pastor Ray Ortland said here, if we want to feel loved by God, we must repent that we have disrelished God's greatest gift and plead with him from, that from the heart we would esteem Christ above all else. That way, having him, we know we already have God's best. We know that he is going to throw in everything else we need to enjoy his greatest gift fully. And that is when we stop feeling sorry for ourselves and start to feel loved. And so if you want to feel loved by God, take a step back and realize what you've already been given. This is what's promised to us in again, another well-known passage in John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus and he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so what is the measure to which God will meet your needs? He's already given you Christ. All things are his. And he has promised you an inheritance in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Not only does believing that free us from stressing out about our own needs now and about, about our own provision now and our own funding now, but, but if we really believe this, we'll see how temporal the things of this earth are. We'll hold them much more loosely and be able to leverage them much more generously to make an impact that actually lasts into eternity. And so, God loves us. The first question if God's for us, who can be against us? The second question, how will he not give us, graciously give us all things? And then we're going to hold the third and the fourth questions together. The third question is, who will bring charges? And the fourth is, who will condemn? Who will bring charges and who will condemn? Now here, Paul flips the order. In the first two, he gave us the truth first. The, the second two, he gives the question and then answers them for us. 
And so for our linear minds, it's a little less confusing, I think. So in verse 34, we see this. Who is to condemn? I'm sorry, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's the answer. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. And so, here Paul talks about accusation and condemnation. This is every bit as painful as material need. And if you live this life, the better you live this life, the more you'll face accusations that are false and people malign your character and slandering you. And it will mess with your head and it will mess with your heart. It's crazy making. And the more good you do, the more you are shaped into the image of Jesus, the more likely it is to happen because look at what happened to Jesus. He faced this too. I've faced this. There have been seasons in my life that have been crazy-making, where people that have been closest to me, who I had, I had held nearest to my heart and offered my heart most vulnerably to, um, and, were, and, and it were close to my family, and were in the same church who we served together, where they dripped venom against me, and, and it, some of it was sin that I needed to repent of, which made it harder, but there were vague things and identity statements, and and it's, it gets so confusing to try to work through because when people come to you, if you love them and are concerned with relationship with them and they have something that they're holding against you, like it's natural if you're a Christian to want to say, like, I'm sorry, I repent, let's talk through what happened here. But when it comes up over and over again and you can't seem to dig out of it, a friend of mine, a sweet friend, sent me Psalm 55 one night as a prayer. It says that David had faced this. This is a masquille of David, so looking internally into David's heart. And he said in Psalm 55, it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. But he closes it. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So David had felt this. Have you experienced this? What David's saying here is one thing if it's an enemy. We expect that from an enemy, right? When an enemy says something bad about you, you go like, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it, that can roll off your back. No big deal. Maybe you think about it for a minute. Maybe you get mad for a second and think about tweeting about it and then go, no, I'm going to put my phone away. And wisely. But you can, you can get past that in a day or so. But it's totally different when somebody close to you, somebody that, somebody that you used to walk together, be friends together, when they, they turn on you and it, and it gets ugly and it, they drip venom against you, and, and you've almost certainly experienced this, but, but it, and it's, never, it's not just addressing sin, because if you're a Christian and somebody exposes something that you've done that's wrong, that violates God's word, then, then we should be eager to see our own sin and kill it and put it to death. And, and repent of it. But when people begin, there's a difference between people saying, hey, when you did this, I think you were out of step with God's word. Let's talk about it. Can you help me to understand what your motives were in your heart versus someone beginning to assign an identity for you as someone who is condemned? When that happens, that's what strikes deep in our souls. It's, and it this is the tactic of our great enemy. In, he, in Greek, the, the word for accuser is diabolos. It's the devil. In Hebrew, the word satanas is our enemy. This is the enemy. Satan never gets tired of slandering God's people, of accusing them. That's his nature. He never gets tired 
of placing God's people under a felt condemnation, reminding us of our sin to feel guilty about God's grace so that you can't even pray because you don't think you're acceptable before God because there is nothing better in Satan's eyes than a miserable and beaten down Christian and a joy-filled Christian that can stand in the confidence of the hope of Christ is his worst nightmare. But if you are in the church, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, then can we stop joining the devil in his work? The church doesn't need more accusers. We don't need more people speaking condemnation over brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't need our help. And if we're under the weight of accusation and condemnation, if you are under that weight today, you need to hear what God's word has for you here. Who will bring any charge against you if you are in Christ? Who can bring an accusation against you? What is the truth Paul turns to? It's God who justifies. Guess what? You're not justified by your own perfection. You don't have to stand before God or anyone else on the merits of your own performance. It should never be hard for a Christian to repent when we really sin. Because we know that we're going to mess up. That's Romans 7. There's this battle within us. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. What a wretched man I am. I love the law of the Lord. But there's another law, there's another law in my heart that's waging war against it. And so, yes, when we mess up, confess that, repent of it. And when you do sin, quickly move on. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I don't like the way you did this, and I think you're a sinner, you can say, you don't know the half of it. I'm way worse than you think. And, and, and if, you are, if you're under the weight of accusation and condemnation today, though, I want you to hear a few things that were gifts to me in a dark, dark season that I walked through. Um, I got to sit with a, an older pastor who, who looked me in the eye and gave me some things that I, I now see so clearly in Scripture, and I want you to hear. First, the Holy Spirit will never bring conviction in ambiguity. The Holy Spirit never speaks vaguely. Remember, God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. The Holy Spirit will use God's word as a surgical scalpel to cut out the cancer of sin within us, and, but it, it will be specific in addressing our sin. When you feel a holy grief over your own sin it, that is spurred by the Holy Spirit of God within you to, address, to, to repent, confess your sin, address it, and bring it to the light so that God can heal you and forgive you, it will be very specific. When you hear the lies of Satan, it will be ambiguous statements about your character as one who stands condemned. God's voice never declares condemnation as our identity. Everything in Romans has stood against that. It is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are justified. Remember what justification is. It is a legal standing before God that in, in, before God is our judge, we stand not in our own self-righteousness, but firmly in the righteousness of Christ given to us. And so the Spirit of God and the voice of God will never declare condemnation over his children. And so if you're a Christian and you're hearing those voices, whether it's from other people around you or whether it's, it's your own internal conflict that you're having, whatever it may be, I, I just read and reread and reread Romans chapter 8. Remember 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. There's no accusation that you stand under anymore. There's no sentence against you anymore. Christ has taken it for you. And, and you don't need to, to prove to God that you're good enough. He knows you're a sinner. You've been outed. It, it took Christ, the second person of the Trinity, it took God in the flesh, incarnate, coming, living perfectly, suffering, being, being put through an illegal trial, arrested, beaten, and killed on the cross, it, that's what it took to take care of your sin. 
but it's sufficient, and the work is done, and he hasn't stayed there. Do you see where this goes? Who is it that can condemn you if you're in Christ? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He ascended and now interceding for us. So who can stand over you anymore? This is the good news of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, this is what you need, this is what it means to turn to Christ, is to believe that he really did die in your place for your sin, that he really was raised from death to life. He really did ascend and now reigns and rules over all things, and that he intercedes for those he loves, and that it is, that is the hope that we can stand in. And so there is no accusation, there is no condemnation that stands over us anymore. And we have a hard enough time, let's just say this as well, we have a hard enough time with our own hearts and understanding our own motives. And so understanding for us that the Holy Spirit never brings conviction ambiguously, but it's always specific. Understanding that God's voice never declares condemnation as our identity, but will always reaffirm that we are loved and that we are his. And that, that in the midst of that, we still struggle with our own hearts. And so we can, let's commit together never to presume to know the motives of someone else's. Yes, if we need to confront sin, there are times when we need to confront. That's one moment, that is one tactic. But remember that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their guilt. And he's better at it than you are. Let him do his work. Yes, and if you're going to confront somebody, it had better be an external action that is observable, that carries a date and a time stamp, and is in clear violation of God's word, chapter and verse. And if someone ever invites you in to help them assess their own motives and idols of their own heart, tread very carefully because you're in very tender, sacred space. And when you do sin, again, repent quickly, move on, and remember that Christ died for you, that he was raised, that he ascended and now intercedes for you. And so when we hear the voices of condemnation, we can respond with confidence to Satan himself and say, you only know the part of it. You don't know the doubts I have internally. You don't know the, the thoughts that I've had. You don't know the things that haven't been typed out and tweeted. You don't know the things that haven't been said to my spouse. You don't know the things that I haven't said. You don't know the times when I've held my temper. You don't know, you don't know the half of it. And still, we have hope. And so our hope is not in our sinlessness, but it's that we have a great Savior. And Paul was able to stand in this and say with, to the Corinthian church, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so are we to be discerning? Yes. Are we supposed to come alongside each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to work together to put sin to death within our lives? Yes and amen. Are we to carefully help each other to see ourselves more clearly? Yes and amen. And don't ever join Satan in telling a brother or sister in Christ that they are damned. Christ died for them, and he has been raised. Charles Octavius Booth said, to justify belongs to God, and when he justifies, there is no possibility of condemnation from any other source. What a ground the Father hath given to us for the fullest belief in Christ. What a reason for devout thankfulness to the, rede the redeemed have. What a motive to induce them to live, not unto themselves, but unto him who has brought them a salvation so helpful and so glorious. And so who will accuse, who will charge, who will condemn? No one can. The fifth and final question we have in our passage who will separate us from God's love? And this gets down to it, right? This is the big one. So who will separate us from God, shall separate us from God's love? And I love that he asks this as a who. Because remember, sin in Romans is not just a personal mistake. It is a dominion. It is a dark power personified. So Paul is saying, who's going to separate you from God's love? Is it going to be sin? Is it going to be the devil? What else? What, come at it. You know, is it tri tribulation? 
That's hard things we go through, or distress, or is it persecution when people are coming at you specifically because of your love for Christ? Is it, is it famine? If you go through, if you're hungry and you, don't, and you go through a famine, does that mean that God doesn't love you? What about if you're left naked? What if you face danger? What if you face the sword? I mean, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. Paul's saying, look around, this place is a slaughterhouse. This is the reality of the earth that we live in. How's that for sugarcoating things for you? And we look at 2020 and say, oh no, the world's ending. Paul's in Rome where Christians are about to get lit up like torches at garden parties and, throw, and fed to lions in the Colosseum. And he's like, yeah, it feels like you're sheep being slaughtered here. So is this going to separate you from the love of God? All the stuff that Christians were about to face in persecution, do we have to be scared that God doesn't love us because of these things? It feels to me like there's a scene in one of the old Indiana Jones movies. I say old because I was a kid, but most of you weren't born. And that in, in, he fights off all kinds of enemies and there's planes rolling around and then there's a guy with two swords. You guys, any of you guys remember this? The guy with two swords that's like doing all these moves with the two swords and Indy has just had enough and finally pulls out his pistol and he's like, pow! and ends it. To me, that's what the end of Romans 8 feels like. Like Paul has gone through all this. He's been walking through this. He's been asked, raising the questions, raising them over and over again. We come to the precipice now, up to the top step of all of this, and he's saying, what else do you have for me? What else do you need to be convinced about? What issue is it that you think is a reason that God's love has been taken from you? And so here, he's looking around and saying, is saying what else is on your mind? What else, is it hard times or anxiety or fear or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or swords? And he's saying, this is real life. You might face these things. Does that mean that God's love has been taken from you? Is there a risk that you'll be separated from God's love because of them? He quotes Psalm 44, and he's saying, death is all around us. And then he goes beyond that. I'm, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, so he's saying demonic creatures that are prowling around trying to destroy you, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He's saying none of these can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Romans 8 is not trying to just pump us up like everything's gonna be sunshine and daisies. Romans 8, Paul is taking everything in, in like stripping the veil away so that we can see all of our enemies clearly and saying, take a good look around. Here's the risks you have. This is what you're gonna face in your life. I want you to see it. You need to see how it looks like the deck is stacked against you. He says powers here. I think we need to hear that right now in our time, in our town at this moment. Because we look to other powers to try to secure the place of Christians in this country, and we need to be careful not to put our hope in princes. The deck is going to look stacked against us. And there are going to be times where because of that, we don't feel loved by God. Because we face opposition, because we get needy, because we face accusations and people have charges against us, because we face condemnation that, it's, that, that hovers over us and, and threatens us and is like a darkness over us. And, and then in the midst of that, we have real suffering and real enemies and real risk. And life is hard and life is unfair and you will be undervalued and you will be mistreated and you will be misunderstood and you will have people that are actually out to get you along the way. Sometimes we make that up in our heads and it just feels that way. Sometimes it's true. But it's, it's like Paul wants to put all that on display for us and say, okay, look around. This world is a slaughterhouse. All day long we're being killed and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Are we actually at risk? Listen, Redemption Hill, if I had one thing to leave you with as your pastor, this is what I would want you to hear. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can any of these things that we've talked about separate us from, from his love? No. In all of it, you've already been given victory. More than that. I'm sure that nothing, death or life, we go through death, Jesus is waiting on the other side. 
Anything we experience in this life, angels or rulers, you want Satan to come at you, let him come at you. Things present, things to come, whatever we might face, I mean, things present in 2020, and who knows if it's going to get better over the next six months. We're halfway through, guys. Remember when we said good riddance to 2019? (laughs) Not height nor depth, nothing in all creation. Remember, creation itself is groaning, longing for the day of its redemption. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can take that away from you. Why? Because Christ died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He has secured God's love for us. Nothing that we can do. And so if you are in Christ, God loves you. And if you're not, turn today, repent and believe and rest in God's work on your behalf because his love for us is not as fickle as our feelings toward him. And when we're struggling to feel God's love for us, which happens, we face difficult things and we abandon God's love for us and the idea of it, but he never leaves. So come back to Romans chapter 8 and read it again and be reminded again, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look to Christ. We don't need God to prove his love for us on a day-to-day basis. He proved it in the cross. And so look to Christ. When we are opposed, it is God who sticks up for us. When we are needy, it is God who provides for us. When we, are, when we face accusations and charges, it is God who justifies us. When we face voices of condemnation, God is our defender. Christ himself intercedes for us directly to the throne in heaven to the only judge who matters. And when we face trial and tribulation, suffering and sorrow, powers and death itself, God will surround us with his protecting love so that whatever we face, we can face it with confidence, knowing that anything we walk through now is simply preparing us for eternity so there is no uncertainty about God's love, there is no question about his presence, and there is no risk that we actually face. And we can live in freedom and boldness to extend his love then to everyone we meet, into our city, no matter how bad we have it. Lord, help us. We are so fickle and so forgetful, and we need to be reminded that you love us. Remind us today, and, but remind us not just intellectually in our heads that we can look to the cross, but move in our hearts by your Spirit to feel your closeness. I pray today for those who are struggling with your love and struggling to feel loved by you would be able to read this text and hear your voice and feel your presence with them. We pray that you would shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. We pray, Lord, that for those who are who are with us and, and that, are, that are joining us today who don't know you and aren't, haven't turned to Christ yet, I pray that you would help them to see the love that you have for us and that you've given us in him. And for all of us, you would put the reality of our circumstances into proper perspective and give us eyes that see on an eternal scope. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.